no one's had more dealings with and can attest to the fact of the untoward nature of the Southern Poverty Law Center than Brother Andre Marie from St. Benedict Center, who's on our Comrex Maker Hotline here for Wisdom Wednesday. Brother, do you still send the Southern Poverty Law Center Christmas cards? <laughs> Uh, no. <laughs> Could you be called as a witness in a case, in a conspiracy case against the SB, uh, SBLC? Uh, well, it, it, you know, I, I think other people have um, maybe deeper grievances with them, but uh, like, you know, people at, uh, the, the people at, what was it, the Family Research Council where they had people shot. That's right. But, um, well, no, I mean, I guess I could because we certainly... Um, were dragged through a lot of garbage because of them. In fact, it in our case with them, it was when our when our attorney. So we had to sue the the, the town of Richmond years ago uh, because we were denied. We, actually, we were allowed to build our chapel, but there were so many conditions on it that were designed to be prohibitive. Some of them were financially prohibitive. Some of them were physically impossible. We had to we had to shut down one well, and before we started to dig another well, <laughs> so that we would have been out of water, which would be illegal because we're a public water facility, um, because we're a public facility with a public water system. So they had all kinds of stuff like this, like thirty some odd conditions that they imposed upon the building project, and it was it was a joke. I mean, these guys were probably laughing up their sleeves, you know, whooping it up when they were imposing these conditions, thinking that they could get away with this. So, you know, we did what every red-brilleted American would do when faced with such a thing. We sued them. <laughs> and, of course, we won. And um, we won big time with, uh, with using the, it wasn't, it, it, using the Arlupa laws, which, um, which were put into force by Bill Clinton. Interesting. <laughs> we, we won a landmark Arlupa case. Anyway, uh, long story short, when our attorney, who was excellent, an excellent attorney, had um, one of the town elders on deposition, and this was this would be the president of the planning board, the sort of the chief villain. Mike, our attorney, asked him just on a lark, and I don't think he was in his prepared questions. He said, "Oh." Um, do you have any involvement with the Southern Poverty Law Center? And the guy said, uh, well, actually, I'm a card-carrying member of the Southern Poverty <laughs> Law Center. And those were his exact words. I am a card-carrying member of the Southern Poverty Law Center. And I think he was being a smart aleck because, you know, calling somebody a card-carrying communist was something that was done back in the day. Yes, it was. And uh, I think he was trying to make fun of of uh, conspiracy-minded conservatives, but it sort of blew up in his face. Uh, because, of course, um, the fact is that he was one of the ones who was informing, giving information about us, well, giving, you know, giving ridiculous ham-handed accusations against us to the Southern Poverty Law Center. It wasn't actually information. And um, so, and he also authored, um, he also, we, we, you know, as they say, discovery is a bummer. Yes. You know? yeah. And um, I cleaned that up. But yes, you did. <laughs> the, 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 um, the, 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 one of the bummer aspects of discovery for them was that uh, there was this guy who had a website that he set up against us. And we, 
we uh, subpoenaed all of the emails between him and the head of the planning board. And when we did, we found out that the head of the planning board, who's a card-carrying member of the Southern Poverty Law Center, was authoring blog postings against us at the same time that he had our building plan uh, in front of the planning board. Wow, how very Biden of him. Yeah, so all this all this came out, and it was so obvious. And some of the local towns around us, we, we, we heard it you know, through channels. In fact, it was our attorneys who told us about it because they represent other towns. Like, they're on the other side of the legal question with certain towns. They'll represent certain towns against people suing them. So they know how this stuff works with town government. Mm -hmm. And they said that some of these towns started to say amongst themselves as they were making decisions involving building plans, let's not pull a Richmond on this. <laughs> you became so a verb. Thankful, <laughs> thankfully, in subsequent years, Richmond's town government has become much more responsible. And I think now it's sort of a paragon of, of civic responsibility and particularly fiscal responsibility. So... Um, but, you know, anyway, so, yeah, I, I could probably testify against the Southern Poverty Law Center. <laughs> right, well, I've got another one that you could get them, uh, you could testify on. Uh, Amazon Incorporated is headquartered in Colorado. And Amazon, back in what year was it, 2017, 2018 or so, decided that uh, to remove the St. Benedict Center from its uh, SMILE program based upon the information it had been sent to by the Southern Southern Poverty Law Center. That's so, right. So you, so you, we used to be able uh, when we were still shopping at Amazon to go buy a book or whatever, and then at the checkout under the Smile program, you could pick a charity to uh, what uh, donate one to one to five percent or of the total purchase to, or or however Amazon did it, they matched it or wh whatever it was, and the Southern as the St. Benedict Center was one of such uh, beneficiaries, and that was a good thing. Well, then the Southern Poverty Law Center found out about it and said, you know, that these people are a bunch of bah, 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 And then Amazon took the bait and went, oh, yeah, okay, since you said it, they must be, and yeah. then removed you from the SMILE program. I'd say that's a conspiracy right there. Yeah. Of course, what they did, it wasn't so much, I mean, it, it wasn't so much that uh, they singled us out. It, the, the way that they did it, the... the Southern Poverty Law Center has like a database of all these organizations, and the um, if to get on the Smile program, all you have to do is be a 501c3. Period. That's it. So all we had to do is prove that, and bam, we were in. Right. Okay. In fact, I don't think we even had to do anything. I think they just got the federal 501c3 database. So we were able to identify that, yeah, we are this group, blah, blah, blah. So we were benefiting from the SMILE program. It wasn't very much. And frankly, I'm glad we don't anymore because Amazon's evil. And I'd rather tell people, stop shopping from these people. They're destroying civilization. They're against everything we're for. Yes. Talk about being and, out of scale. Yeah. And anyway, yeah, I, mean, I hate when I see those Amazon trucks. You know, you, they're, they're, it's, it's, it's like the, the, the devil's minions. They're everywhere. But um, lo long story short is uh, they, they, all they did was they got another database from the SPLC and said, well, you know, oh, well, we're going to be responsible now and, and make sure that none of the organizations that benefit from the SMILE program are, you know, uh, hate groups or, you know, evil, whatever, however they identified the, the, the groups in Globo. And they just sort of got this dump from the SPLC. And, of course, after that, we didn't make the cut. 
By the way, um, one of the reasons I quit buying Apple products is because now on the on the Apple for the last few years on the Apple Store, you can make a donation to the Southern Poverty Law Center right from the Apple Store. <laughs> so this is that sodomite Tim Cook, um, you know, supporting his fellow travelers at the Southern Poverty Law Center. Yeah, and uh, it's one of these things that old Mac guys like me just uh, have. Uh, it's one of those conflicts that yep. I have to deal with, and <laughs> yeah, well, that's why I went with Linux. But you know, I, I, I'm not, I'm not acting like some, I'm some sort of a purist here because because the, Brother Joseph uses uh, apples. I mean, we have to for for video editing, audio editing, um, most of the layout we do. Um, I mean, there, there, there. There's good layout software for 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 PCs now, but um, well, just but remember when 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 if someone asked me that, I'll go like, well, okay. Here's what I'm going to say to you: uh, there would be no Apple computer had that family, uh, that Catholic family, practicing Catholic family in Cupertino, California, the man and the woman who was uh, she was uh, the wife and he was the owner or the management of the restaurant. When that woman uh, worked for them, came to them and said, I'm pregnant and I don't want to have the baby. They talked her into having the baby and they adopted it. That baby became Steve Jobs. So uh, that's my he answer. He became a Buddhist. <laughs> he became a Buddhist. Well, he didn't die as a Buddhist. What's that? He, didn't, he did not die as a Buddhist. Did uh, he come back to the faith? I don't know that he did, but I do know that he was visited uh, I do know that clergy visited him. It's one of those shows that George Webb and I used to need to have. I need to go back to Isaacson's book and read about the end of his life. It would uh, it would be tragic if he did die as a Buddhist. And maybe he did. I'm not saying he didn't. Well, he I mean he was a genius, and I think his his uh, he also um, you know he stayed out of the the the, the culture wars from what I know. I mean I'm not a huge I, I don't know a lot about him. I'm not some geek who knows a lot about him. But I am. Isn't that true that he stayed out of the <laughs> Well, I mean, kind of. Well, if you if you go back and look at the old Apple ads, uh, think differently. You'd see the figures that thought differently, and instead of choosing uh, Jesus, he chose Gandhi. Yeah. <laughs> or instead of choosing choosing Pius the Tenth, he chose Gandhi. So you know there and, was and, I, and Alfred Einstein and yeah, Einstein, uh, and, and they said think different, which I always thought that was a deliberately ungrammatical construction. Because it should be think differently, which is what you auto-edited it to, because it should be an adverb. But yeah, I think that was a deliberately ungrammatical thing in order to make it stick in people's minds. Well, and then also the, but he is also he was also responsible for the 1984 ad that shows the one woman going up against the machine and destroying it. Uh, where she hurls the the hammer, uh, she runs into the hall and hurls the hammer at the big at Big Brother, who's talking on the screen. Very complicated man, like most of life, brother. Things aren't as e <laughs> as easy as we would wish for them to be sometimes. Mm. Not as cut and dry. Okay, black, white. <laughs> you're on that side. Blue, gray. You're on that side. You're on this side. It uh, doesn't always work out that way. Uh, speaking of things that don't always work out that way. Uh, yesterday was a feast of the uh, of the Assumption of Our Lady. You and I talked about it last Wisdom Wednesday. I looked it up. So if you want a Wisdom Wednesday discussion about the Assumption, it's last uh, last year. It was on the on the actual feast day. Today is the feast day instead of Saint Joachim, who is the father of the Blessed Virgin Mary, Saint Rocco. 
and uh, St. Beatrice. I get this according to Catholicism.org. I'll tell you a funny story the other day. Janet Huxley <laughs> does the saint of the day, and I'm listening and going, wait a minute, that's not right. Today's St. Jean-Marie Vianney. And she goes, no, no, I got it from the Trididio calendar. It's not. And I went, that's because that's, that's a pious, that calendar is prior, to, is prior to his canonization. And then I said, always your first stop, ma'am, is always Catholicism. Are you ready for this, brother? Is always Catholicism.org. That's your first stop. If the slaves to the American heart say that's the saint of the day, then that's the saint of the day. So you're an Thanks encyclopedia, for the Mike. <laughs> you are a, you're a Catholic encyclopedia of sorts <laughs> today. No, it really happened, and I'm like, you can't do that. And she goes, I'm so sorry. I'm like, just don't worry about it. So she kind of did a follow up the next day. Uh, we don't know a lot of, a lot about, so we won't spend a lot of time on it. We don't know a lot about. As a matter of fact, we don't know anything really through the Gospels about the life of Saint Joachim, do we? No, he's not mentioned in the Gospels not at all. At he's all. Um, he's mentioned in the Proto Evangelium of James, which is a, which is a um, an apocryphal book, and which gives us certain traditions about Our Lady, um, and uh, m many of the fathers of the Church used it um, as a source for some of these things. Um, Saint John, the the. If I'm remembering correctly, one of the Matins readings uh, for today is from St. John uh, of Damascus, or John Damascene, and he's talking about Anna and Joachim, and he's actually commenting on the meaning of their names, because um, St. Joachim's name means the preparation of the Lord, or, uh, yeah, or preparing, something like that, I mean, of the Lord. And um, St. Anne's name, Anna, which is, by the way, the female version of John okay. in the Semitic uh, languages. Uh, Anna or Hannah uh, means grace. So, uh, and Mary means lady. So it's she's the uh, she's the the preparation of the Lord and and grace combined and brought us the lady. Um, so Saint John. Jamachine makes a big deal of 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 that. And yes, he's drive he's deriving the names. Not from the four canonical gospels because Our Lady's parents aren't mentioned in there, but um, he's deriving the names purely from the uh, the the, pr the apocryphal Proto Evangelium of James. And that's why the uh, uh, of course the Blessed Virgin Mary would had to have had a mother and a father, and they are Saint Anne and uh, Saint Joachim, as Brother just said. Um, Brother, I, 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 I might hit you with a few curveballs and spitballs here today, and uh, this will be a, a, a chat room fan favorite. Uh, before we get into anything that we may latch onto, there's great substance. Um, are you familiar with the Infant of Prague? Sure. What does the infant of Prague have in his left hand? Um, if I'm not mistaken, he's holding up a ring. Is it a ring or is it a bowl? If, um, yeah, you, you, okay, so you, you, you are, you are um, catching me unaware. Uh, it's a, it's <laughs> um, and uh, in one of his hands, he's, he's got a ring. Okay. But um, I'd have to have the image in front of me. Well, I've seen it as, and there's a ring that goes around what looks to be a sphere of sorts. 
So the the ring has the crucifix that that has a cross at the top of. That's is that what you're describing, right? It looks like a ball to me. It looks like a. Okay, so in his left hand, he's holding a globe. Yeah. Okay. And his right hand, I think that's where the ring is normally placed. But I'm looking at the actual image as it is in Prague, and I don't see the ring. But it's not the best image. It's not a close up. Okay. So um, I can find another one, but um, yeah. So he's got the globe, and that's just a sign of kingship. It's a sign of our Lord's, um, yeah, but kingship over the over the over the the the, the entire universe. This will be a chat a chat room fan favorite, and uh, again, it's just partly a uh, it's just partly a, a piece of satire here. What? How come he doesn't have a saucer in his hand? A what? A saucer. You know, with the earth painted on it. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> we don't have to go maybe, any further than that. Maybe the infant of Prague wasn't a flat earther. I mean. <laughs> Somebody goes like, prove to me. Prove it to me. Give me proof. Give me proof from the God. Give me proof. Give me Jesus proof. Give me, give me gospel proof. I sent him a picture of the infant of Prague. I'm like, how come he doesn't have, a, how come he doesn't have St. Lucy's saucer in his hand? <laughs> with the earth, oh, yeah. With the earth yeah, I have a friend who's a flat earther, and I'm embarrassed every time. He's a nice guy, but I, every time I see his car parked in the church parking lot, you go, oh, no. Flat earther bumper sticker on I'm like, oh, my God, I hope the neighbors don't look at that sticker. <laughs> well, I hope he doesn't engage me. <laughs> uh, if there ever it was anything that is impervious to logic and reason and maybe even invincibly ignorant, it is the mindset of some flat earthers. Anyway, I told somebody, I was like, okay, I'm going to ask Brother Andre Marie that question and see what he says. Not, not, not about the earth being flat or anything, just about the infant of Prague. Because I'm like, good enough for Jesus, good enough for me. Because <laughs> I've always thought, looking at a distance, that he was holding the, the globe, not a globe. In any event, Brother, uh, your latest, um, and by the by, if you want to have a discussion about this, folks, and you want to have a really intellectual discussion, especially if you are a flat earther, I challenge you, go right now to Catholicism.org and go buy yourself and your spouse a ticket to the St. Benedict Center Conference, and I want you to go sit down at a table with Hugh Owen, and I want you to tell him why the earth is flat. And I can't, as a matter of fact, let me know that you're going to do it so I can get my camcorder, my, 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 my filming device ready. Because I, I so look forward to the answer that Hugh Owen is going to give you. <laughs> Which will be entertainment. In it. As a matter of fact, that would be a great... If the sisters can't put the band back together and play the fiddle and the other instruments, maybe we'll just get Hugh up there and <laughs> get a flat earther up there in a good old-fashioned Stephen uh, Lincoln-Douglas debate. Uh, that would be fun. Okay. No, Maggie's going, no, don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> uh, brother, let's talk about uh, uh, this uh, briefly. Uh, your ad rem about the synod uh, that is going on, synod uh, synodality, the latest ecclesiastical MacGuffin. Um, a lot of people aren't going to know what a, especially youngsters, because they don't watch classic films, aren't going to know what a MacGuffin is. You want to tell them what a MacGuffin is or who a MacGuffin was? Okay, yeah. So you're you're talking about an uh, an odd round that I came up with in early August. We didn't talk about this a couple of weeks ago. No, because you were out last week. Remember, you had to go visit. Yeah, last week I was out. That's right. I was going to see my dying friend Robert Hickson. But um, 
Yeah. Okay. So the the uh, yeah, so a MacGuffin, according to um, Alfred Hitchcock, is some sort of an object or device that's necessary for the plot. So it's necessary to understand the motivation of the characters in the film. Ah. But it's not really important to the to the to the viewer. At least that's how Hitchcock reckoned it. Um, there, there's further MacGuffin theory developed by uh, um, George Lucas, who, who thought that the audience should want to know about the MacGuffin. And he, by the way, Lucas said that R2-D2 was a MacGuffin in the Star Wars trilogy. But um, anyway, the, the MacGuffin is something like, you know, it could be like the briefcase or the, or the folder with, this, with the secrets in it. And the secrets could be whatever. It could be, you know, all the CIA agents who were operatives in Moscow. Or it could be the, the you know, to update it, some, some computer code. Or it could be a, uh, the, the plans for the, the uh, design of some new, you know, d double, double, you know, triple secret um, bomber, bomber jet, or nuclear device, or something, and that becomes it, it, it. This becomes sort of the basis of all the intrigue. So it's especially done with mysteries or suspense films. Um, the Mission Impossible films had MacGuffins in them, which would be this kind of thing. You know, there's some list of CIA agents or some some new device that the bad guys have and they got to get the plans to it and that's right by the end of the film the particulars of what the MacGuffin is d doesn't matter they don't matter it doesn't matter what the thing is what really matters is all the action surrounding it right so that was it's it's just a device it's a plot tool that that's used by the uh, film score, and not film score, but film script writer and the director to focus all the all the action around and um, it's not used in every film, but it's used in particularly those genres that I already mentioned, you know, suspense and mysteries um, and, uh, and um, action, action films as well. Uh, so the, um, the, my contention is that two of the big isms of the, that have, I think, done a lot of damage to the life of the church in the 20th and 21st century, ecumenism, and now it's not really an ism, it's an ality, but synodality um, are uh, MacGuffins. Because it's not, it's not so, what's, what's important, I think, to the people who are using these things isn't so much the thing itself as what it can be used for. So ecumenism was used as a wrecking ball to just invade every life, every aspect of ecclesial life. Everything, and they said there was. I quoted this um, 1992, or I referenced this 1992 decree, or no, uh, what was it called? Directory on Ecumenism, that came out during John Paul II's era, called Directory for the Application of Principles and Norms of Ecumenism. When you look at this thing, it talks about everything in the faith taking on an quote ecumenical dimension. In fact, I did a little word search and the the, the phrase or the two words ecumenical dimension show up 22 times in this thing. Everything takes on an ecumenical dimension. Seminary formation, moral teaching, you know, apologetics, catechesis, liturgy, everything is ecumenized. And um when you when you when you realize that ecumenism is defined as the quest for um, church unity or Christian unity, and when they don't spe specify what Christian unity is when finally accomplished, mm -hmm. 
Uh, and I mean, for us, you know, the, the Christian unity, I mean, we go by Pius XI, and of course, Pius XI didn't come up with this. This is simply the, the he's, he's speaking in the name of the, of the perennial Catholic tradition that, uh, that church unity or Christian unity is unity, the unity of all the baptized in the one mystical body of Christ, which is the Catholic Church. For us, that's what church unity is. And I realize, obviously, that other Christians from other denominations, you know, whether they're you know evangelicals or Calvinists or Baptists or, or Lutherans or whatever, they're, they're not going to see it that way. Well, that's the point. I mean, it's it's we, we can't have some mere Christianity to rob a book title from C.S. Lewis. We can't have some Christianity that's divorced from the incarnational economy that Jesus Christ established or really that, that the Trinity established. Uh, we cannot uh, divorce that incarnational economy, which is ecclesial, which is sacramental, which is based upon flesh and blood. We can't replace that with some uh, Christianity that's not incarnate, you know, that's not particularized in the mystical body of Christ, because that's the way God did it. We can't say we'll do it otherwise. Right and and oh everybody's free to sort of have his own sect. It makes a mockery of Scripture when 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 Saint Paul uh, and others, Saint Peter, in their canonical epistles, make it really clear that there's this authority structure in the church, and then you have to be obedient to the prelates, for instance. Um, and you know Saint Peter says, you know that you, you, they they're they're accountable for your souls. Um, when we see these things, and when we see our Lord saying, if a man hear not the church, let him be to thee as the heathen and the publican, well, the immediate question comes to mind is, who are these prelates and what is this church? That's right. And if at any point you decide you disagree with the beliefs or the disciplines or the, the um, uh, liturgy or whatever of this body, you can just break from it and start your own. Make your own up. Well, then that's clearly... That clearly sort of makes a mockery of the words of Scripture, doesn't it? So there has to be some one ecclesial structure that is the church that Jesus Christ established. And, of course, you know, we Catholics know <laughs> that the Catholic Church is it. And if you, so ecumenism is, is not an overt denial of that, but it's sort of a sidestepping of it and saying, well, we're, but we want to find a, a new way of, of having church unity. But no, Ch Pius XII made it really clear the only way we can have Christian unity is in the one church that Jesus Christ himself established. That's it. And in Tolkien, and one ring to rule them all. Well, we don't want to use that because the one ring was bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, but the symbolism of the one ring to rule them all. Or, 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 or okay, at the end, then the, the king. The baton of the well, king. Well, I think it would be the, the, the symbolism would be, I mean, okay, so Tolkien's world is 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 notably bereft of, of a church. But there is, strangely enough, even though there's not a church, there is a unity of throne and altar. And it's shown in the person of Gandalf, who coincidentally becomes, after his uh, battle with the Balrog, he becomes Gandalf the White, right? So he's wearing a white outfit, kind of like the Pope. And he is taking the position in, in Middle-earth that the Pope had in Christendom, right? Because he has no, in the books he makes it really clear, he doesn't have the interest of any one nation or any one race 
at heart. Not the hobbits, not the man, not Gondor, right. not Rohan, not. But he has the interest of all the peoples of Middle Earth at heart. Well, Tolkien's sort of taking a taking a cue from the role of the papacy as kind of the 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 UN moderator of Christendom. You know, you, the, I would argue that the UN is actually usurper taking the role of the papacy in um, in arbitrating between nations. We can just say that the UN is bad. The UN is bad. Yes. Yes. The clearly. UN is bad. I, I, I'm not. So when I when I when I liken the papacy in the Middle Ages to the UN, all I mean is is that they, oh, I get that it. the papacy fulfills a sort of an uh, a, a, a role of arbitrating or mediating between. Christian nations, and you can only do that if they look at the Pope as somebody who has authority that's spiritual and that sort of transcends the, the sovereignty of individual nations. Uh, Brother Andre Marie, the St. Benedict Center and the host of Reconquest Radio here on the Crusade Channel. Uh, Brother is in his, uh, we're in the eighth year now, and we're up to episode 388. I think you just. Um, I, I have just recorded 386. 386. That's, go, that's running tonight. That's what I said, 386. Uh, uh, episode number 386 is on our Dude Maker Hotline. Um, I want to uh, just. Uh, okay, kind of staying on the same subject, but hearkening back then to yesterday and to the Feast of the Assumption of Our Lady, and something that I read in Don Prosper Garen Jay. That had uh, that I must have missed it the first two or three years that I read it, or either that or I just uh, I didn't focus on it. But he said something I thought was pretty profound, and to the um, to to the the importance and the premacy of our Blessed Lady um, and her role in, in all this. And people may wonder why we Catholics have these Mary and these fixations on the Mother of God. Well, the way John Prosper put it yesterday, and he said many wonderful things, or wrote many wonderful things. Brother, he wrote about how that um, we get the incarnation of our Lord, and in man's human nature, a man is born by a man and a woman, a father and a mother. Well, in the steed of a father is God the Father and the Holy Ghost, and the Holy Ghost will come over you and will overshadow you. So at the beginning of the story, we get the beginning of human life, of our Lord's human nature, and we get it through the BVM, the Blessed Virgin Mary. Well, in the assumption at the end of the story of our Blessed Lady here on this earth, we also get human nature. She goes to sleep, as uh, the tradition says, right? She goes into her dormition. She's sleeping. And then she dies, and then they lay her to rest. And then, of course, Doubting Thomas comes along and goes, like, I'm not going to believe until I see her. And then, of course, they go to the sepulcher or wherever it was, and she is gone. And as Don Prosper says, this closes the human I don't have the book here in front of me. This closes the human uh, circle uh, of life as God would have it. That our Lord's life and then the Holy Family's life and our Lady's life is in keeping in perfect harmony, perfect perfect sync with nature uh, and God the way he created us. And that through her, 
Uh, we get the birth of our Lord, and then we get her death, and then assumption, and she's assumed in heaven, and and then follows him, and it, it closes the, the the story, or closes the loop, if you will. Um, and, and it's just a it's a wonderful way to think about it. That had if you did not have the assumption, then what would you have? You, you you'd have the you know the quest for the holy for the holy virgin. <laughs> you'd have you'd have uh, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg out there making movies about the quest for the holy veil instead of the holy grail. That God closes the loop in a holy way for the the, the holiest of all uh, of all humans. Of course, the one uh, virgin conceived without sin, and it just—if you think about it in in, in in that in that term—if you didn't have the assumption, why, why a Protestant may I ask, why do you have to have the assumption? If you don't have the assumption, well, then as when I'm meditating upon that mystery of the Rosary, say that Jesus would not leave his beloved, blessed mother's body here on this earth to become food for worms or a prize for infidels. And our imitation of Christ, as he so loved her, so should we. Uh, but God prevents that quest. There is no quest for her relics, because there aren't any. Is the point. So he closes the loop. He closes the story, if you will. Um, and just the way Don Prosper, in his own inimitable or inimitable way, the way he put it from uh, from his description, from his uh, his very beautiful um, meditation upon the assumption of our uh, of Our Lady yesterday, just struck me. It 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 it, it, it made me think for a long time, and it made me very um, it filled me with joy to think of it like that. Yeah, and another thing to keep in mind is that Our Lady is the Ark of the New Covenant. There's an awful lot that's said about the Ark uh, in the Old Testament that, uh, when I say Ark, I don't mean Noah's Ark. I mean <laughs> the Ark of a Covenant, you know, the, that that um, box of acacia wood lined within and without with gold that's carried by the priests and that for the whole time that it was with the people of God, uh, was in either the um, tabernacle that traveled with the, the uh, Hebrews in the desert, the Israelites in the desert, or the um, Temple of Solomon. And of course, after the, um, the Babylonian captivity, it was, um, I mean, it was when the, I guess it was when the Assyrians came in, that, that it was hidden by Nathan the prophet so that it couldn't be taken by the, 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 the infidel. And it was hidden. The ark was hidden. And there's a tradition among the Jews that when Moses comes back, he will reveal the place, the hiding place of the ark. And there's an awful lot about the ark in the Old Testament that points to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Uh, and, I mean, we could, we, could, we could do some of the point-by-point point point comparisons, but what I want to do is just sort of... Um, uh, highlight the fact that there is a psalm uh, that's uh, Psalm 131 verse 8 says arise O Lord into your resting place you and the ark which you have sanctified now literally in, in, in the literal sense this is God whose, whose glory surrounded the, the um, tabernacle in the, in the Old Testament when it was consecrated and there was the the, the so-called glory cloud, um, was was which is the visible this this luminous cloud, right? It was the visible manifestation of God's presence. Right. 
it, it filled that tabernacle. So that's the Lord going into the tabernacle. He's rising up to go into his tabernacle. And the ark that he sanctified, literally the ark of the covenant that was commanded to be built, that, that, that Moses, Noah rather was, I mean, I'm sorry, Moses was commanded to build. And he had, God gave these two men who were artisans the, the, the plans to do it. One of them's name was Oliab. I forget the other's name. It's just not coming to me. And those guys um, built the thing, and it was literally placed into the into the into the um, tem- tabernacle. Now later on, it goes into the temple, but at that point, David's dead, and it's Solomon who does it. Um, his son, the Prince of Peace, right? Well, you take that, and you say, well. Does this apply to our lady? Does this apply to our Lord? Well, our Lord ascended into heaven of His own power, because He is God. Right. Um, and the, by the by, by His own power, He rose from the dead. By His own power, He ascended into heaven. So He He is the Lord, uh, arising and going into His resting place. But what's the ark that He sanctified? Well, St. John Damascene says it in, in that reading that I mentioned to you before for, I think it's mat- for today's Matins. It may have been for the, for the uh, Matins of the Assumption. Um, but the, the, there was a, there was a, a clear uh, patristic reference to Our Lady being the Ark of the New Covenant. Mm-hmm. And that she herself is in that place of the Ark. And, and what, what, how do we make sense of that? Well, okay, so... Inside of the ark, there were three things that were contained, okay. right? Um, it, it contained the, the, the rod of Aaron, showing Aaron's high priestly power. It contained a gomor of the manna, which was a, a container, like a jar, with manna from, from the desert, uh, and which is that, that bread that fell from heaven, which is a type of the Eucharist. Yes. And then it contained also the, the broken tablets, the tablets that, that Moses threw down when he saw these people engaged in this idolatrous worship, which was orgiastic in character when he came down from, the, um, from Mount Sinai, right? So those three things, the Decalogue, the, uh, the Rod of Aaron, and the Gomor of Manna. So it's the Decalogue, it's, it's the Logos, it's the Word of God, huh? the Word of God, the commandments of God. So Jesus is the Logos, he's the Word. Um, the Rod of Aaron, Jesus is the Eternal High Priest. And the, the, the Gomor of Manna, which was, I already said was typical of the, the Eucharist, it was a type, an Old Testament type of the Eucharist. Our Lord himself says this in John chapter 6. So uh, Jesus is the bread of life, too. So this thing, this ark, contains Jesus. It contains, the Old Testament ark contains these things that are three very powerful prefigurations of the Messiah to come. And it's inside of this thing, which is made of acacia wood, which was considered to be incorruptible because it was very, it was very, you know, it was like, I don't know, pressure treated. That's how God made it, right? It was, it was, tre- it was treated it, lumber. <laughs> it, 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 it's, yeah, it came pressure treated. It, it was it was very um, resistant to decay. And then on top of that, it was lined within and without by gold, which some of the commentators say this shows you Our Lady's, her, her external beauty, but also her, more importantly, her internal beauty, her fullness of grace. And uh, so those things are contained inside the ark. Now, the other thing is, you, you take 
the ark. And you say, well, yeah, this is the ark that the Hebrews used, the Israelites used, but was, it, was this a unique thing for them? Were there other arks too? And the answer is yes, there were other arks that were used by the surrounding nations. In fact, these things have been unearthed. And they always were, uh, what would you call it? Like a, like a, a um, you know, you know the, the, the precursor to the Pope mobile uh, was the thing called the Sedia Justitoria that these Italian uh, noblemen carried the Pope around on, right? So they had these rods, the, the, these big big poles. I mean, it's a big thing, right? And when you came to John, John the 23rd very humorously gave the guys who carried that thing a raise because he said that he was so much heavier than Pius XII, they deserved to get a raise. He was a big, he was a large man. Yeah, he was, he was, he was, uh, yeah, he was a bit heavy in the loafers, as a priest <laughs> friend of mine would say. And, uh, and he, so he, but I mean, it shows you he, he was kind of good natured and he had a sense of humor because he did say that. Unless, of course, it's apocryphal, but I think it was a real story. Um, so, so uh, this thing that was this sort of glorified seat for an important man—I mean, that wasn't unique to the papacy. That this kind of seat was used uh, in other cultures. Well, that's exactly what the ark was. The arks were in Middle Eastern religion. They were not only specifically seats; they were seats for female deities. And the uh, when you look at the ark of the covenant, any of the artistic renderings of it, you'll see that the way that the angels are on top of it, by the way, it's an indictment of, of, of the falsehood of the objection that, that uh, we Catholics are idolaters because we have graven images, because these are graven, literal graven images. Mm -hmm. On top of the Ark of the Covenant, there are two um, wings, two, two angels with their wings spread, mm -hmm. and th there's an empty space there. Now, that's called the mercy seat, or the propitiatory. And the thing is, in, in the true Ark of the Covenant that the Jews had, it was empty. In the uh, idolatrous arks that the uh, pagan nations, like the Sumerians and the Babylonians had, there was a female deity there between the angels. So uh, this was known as the propitiatory or the mercy seat where God would show mercy to us, right? Well, later on, when we see the fathers connecting the dots between the Ark of the Covenant and the Blessed Virgin Mary, who in so many ways is a fulfillment of the type of the Ark, people put two and two together and say, well, she is the, she is mother, the mother of mercy, right? She is, she is the, the propitiatory, the place where God's mercy is made manifest, literally in the incarnation, which was an act of tremendous mercy for the, for the merciful Savior to come to save us from our sins and to lift us up into the supernatural life so that we could go to heaven and be happy for all eternity. So there's a lot, there are a lot of connections here. Now, we're not saying that the Blessed Virgin Mary is a deity. No, of course not. Female deities are, are well... They're evil. They're he they're heathen, but the this is the place where God, through this perfect creature, comes in to make 
contact with man, right? And that was what these arks were. They were they were things that were you know like like a temple, right? Like a like a church, like a like the like the temple of Solomon or before the tabernacle that fought, that the Jews carried around with them in the desert and had to set up. It was a huge elaborate tent that they had to set up every time they they moved. Um, this this enormous place of worship was a place where God makes contact with man. And we see it all throughout the Bible. It's, this isn't some pagan idea. This is very Christian and very Jewish. Right. That there are places where God makes contact with man, right? Mount Sinai being one of them. Huh? Um, Mount Horeb being another, which is called in Scripture the, the, the mountain of God. So, you know, Mount Tabor in the New Testament um, these mountains are places, you know, high places where God makes contact with man. Well, the Ark of the Covenant was one of those sort of uh, lochi, a place where God would make contact with man. And it's typical of the Blessed Virgin Mary in as much as she is that place where God makes contact with man. And ultimately, in her womb, the new temple is constructed so that... And, and so I'm calling Jesus the new temple. Why? Well, because St. John calls him that. <laughs> I mean, when G in fact, Jesus calls himself that when he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will build it up again. And St. John adds a little inspired footnote there and says he spoke not of, his, of, his, uh, not of the temple of, of Solomon, but of, of his body. He was speaking of his body. And throughout the, throughout the narrative of St. John's Gospel, we see Jesus sort of pitted against the temple. There are times when he's standing, quote, over and against the temple, as if he's opposed to this thing. Well, this is a holy thing and a good thing, but as soon as it's destroyed, and keep in mind St. John's writing after the destruction of the temple, as soon as it's destroyed, it becomes a symbol of the, the, the now defunct Old Testament the now dead and not only dead but deadly rites that were performed in 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 the in that temple and and they were only deadly after the destruction of the temple um, which is why Christians cannot cannot partake in seder meals we cannot partake in any of the rituals of the old testament all of that has been fulfilled saint thomas makes it very clear all of these things were acts of faith in the savior to come and the messiah is to come and if after he has come you perform these rites then you are implicitly saying he has not yet come brother andre so, marie of the saint benedict center and uh, reconquest ready on our dude maker hotline here with us uh for another wisdom wednesday uh, no brother please uh, uh, continue or wrap it up well, where, where was I, where was I going with this? Um, so yeah, you have this you have this um, uh, this ark is a symbol of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and when we talk about when we quote that Psalm that I quoted earlier, which was Psalm uh, one hundred and thirty one, verse eight, and of course this is in the in Saint Jerome's reckoning uh, and and the Catholic reckoning before we started following Protestants and Jews and numbering the Psalms. Um, this this reckoning, um, this this psalm verse says, uh, you know, arise, O Lord, into your resting place, you and the ark which you have sanctified. Well, when we look at the Blessed Virgin Mary as the ark of the new covenant, we see that she's the ark that our Lord has sanctified by His presence there, and she too arises and goes into uh, the resting place, which is of course heaven. 
Now, that's not, a, that's not a direct proof of the assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. A closer biblical direct proof would be found in, in the Apocalypse chapters 11 and 12. When it, 11 talks about the, 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 um, the woman, uh, the woman of the Apocalypse. And then 12, when, when chapter 12 opens, you know, look, look at Apocalypse 11 and then look at, read Apocalypse 12. And Apocalypse 11 is talking about this woman uh, who is, um, you know, the, the devil's going after. And a standard Catholic reading of this is that this is the Blessed Virgin Mary. There's also an ecclesiastical interpretation of it, that it's the church. Okay. Uh, those don't contradict each other, by the way, because St. Francis said, Our Lady is the Virgo Facta Ecclesia. She's the woman made, the virgin made church. She she was the church at one time, as Dom Guerinji says on, on, on uh, that first Holy Saturday. She was the church. Um, but when when the uh, when verse or chapter twelve opens in the apocalypse, Saint John sees heaven now opened, and he what does he see in heaven? The ark. And it's, I, there's a great presentation by Scott Hahn about this, who says this isn't uh, like between the, the last verse of chapter 11 and the first verse of chapter 12, there's not a hard break because, of course, when St. John wrote it, there were no chapters and, and, and verses. The chapters were given by the, a Catholic monk in the Middle Ages. The verses later were given to us by Protestants. Uh, so it wasn't St. John wasn't writing chapter and verse. He was just writing a straight narrative. So he goes from 11 to 12, and it goes from the woman, the woman, the woman, the woman, the woman, and then I see the heavens open, and I see the Ark of the Covenant. Well, Scott Hahn makes the point, a very compelling argument, that the Ark is the woman. He's not ceased talking about the woman. He's seeing the ark, perhaps literally the ark, with Our Lady seated on top of it on the mercy seat, because it was a seat. It was supposed to accommodate somebody. And he has it that, since it's so typical of the Blessed Virgin, and since what the Jews would have known in the neighboring nations was this thing that had this feminine divinity on it, that... The, Our Lady, who nobody thinks is a divinity, Our Lady is seated on it, and she is that place where we receive mercy, right? So um, it's a beautiful thought. So I, I think it's direct, this is the closest biblical indication that the Blessed Virgin Mary is in, is in heaven, body, and soul. But, you know, historically, the fathers uh, um, talk about it very, very clearly. There was a liturgical feast of it going back to the 6th century in I think it was in Jerusalem and Rome. They were they were celebrating the feast in the seventh century, uh, but the the fathers of the church connected these dots between the the Old Testament Ark and the New Testament Ark being Our Lady. So that's a that's a deep connection between uh, or to the mystery of. Our Lady's um, bodily assumption. There are a lot of Marian doctrines that only make sense when you realize she is the perfectly redeemed human. You know, for our for the work of our Lord Jesus Christ to be shown to be to be perfect, it makes sense that not only did He save any humans at all from hell and bring them to heaven, but that somebody at least, at least one person would be perfectly redeemed. And this is why Our Lady is immaculately conceived. Because never once did the devil have any claim on her, period. She was 
perfectly redeemed. And if somebody says, well, she can't be, you can't say she's redeemed, that is to say bought back if she was never in sin, I would say, yes, you can. This is exactly the reasoning of uh, Pius the Ninth, following the reasoning of Don Scotus of the 13th century, which is that she was preventatively redeemed or preventively redeemed. Before, in other words, before original sin <coughs> could touch her, she was bought back. And, um, and then on the other side, so in her origins, she was perfectly redeemed because original sin never touched her and she was full of grace. And we need good origin stories. And then in, but, and then in her consummation, right, at the end of the story, which her story hasn't really ended yet, but at the end of her earthly life, she's assumed uh, so that corruption would never touch her. So that just as the corruption of sin never touched her, remember, she's that acacia wood, that incorruptible wood lined with gold. Huh? So just as sin didn't touch her at the beginning, uh, corrupt, the corruption, which is due to sin, didn't touch her either. And, so, and a, a wonderful explanation, brother, and if I may, uh, here on earth, she is still with us today as well um, uh, in a very, um, nat uh, or very organic and corporeal and, uh, and form in which you can go and see if you like. And I'm going to draw from John Senior's book, The Restoration of Christian Culture, and his final chapter where he talks about Henry Adams, John Adams' grandson, the great historian, who flirted with Catholicism near the end of his life. We don't think he converted. But he went to Chartres, and he wrote a book, brother, Mont Saint-Michel on Chartres. And here's what, here's what the secular Henry Adams said about Chartres. To the church, no doubt, its cathedral here has a fixed and administrative meaning, which is the same as that of every other bishop's seat. But to us, it's a child's fancy, a toy house to please the queen of heaven, to please her so much that she would be happy in it, to charm her till she smiled. The queen mother was as majestic as you like. She was absolute. She could be stern. She was not above being angry, but she was still a woman who loved grace, beauty, ornament, her toilette, robes, jewels, who considered the arrangement of her palace with attention and liked both light and color. She was extremely sensitive to neglect, to disagreeable impressions, to want of intelligence in her surroundings. She was the greatest artist, as she was the greatest philosopher and musician and, the and, and theologist that ever lived on earth, except her son, who as Chartres is still an infant under her guardianship. This church was built for her in this spirit of simple-minded, practical, utilitarian faith. In this singleness of thought, exactly as a little girl sets up a dollhouse for her favorite blonde doll. Unless you can go back to your dolls, you are out of place here. If you can go back to them and get rid for one small hour of the weight of custom, you shall see Chartres in her glory. Close quote. And then Senior says, to put an exclamation point, and that, Adam says, is not just true of the great cathedral in France, which is its highest expression in stone, but of Christian culture absolutely everywhere, wherever it has been or will be on earth. Mary is its cause, effect, 
and measure. The devil's name is legion and his doctrine pluralism. And the Blessed Virgin Mary hates him, his doctrine, and the architecture of his dark satanic mills. So, um, she's still all around us. You go to Notre Dame de Paris, there it is, Our Lady of Paris. Go to um, any of the great churches you and I just talked about last week in, New in the city of New Orleans, the uh, Church of the Assumption, she's still there. Go to the Our Lady of Prompt Sucker in Lake Charles or in Sulphur, Louisiana. There she is in the form of Our Lady of Prompt Sucker. She's everywhere. In artwork, as Carrie Gress begins in her book, The Marian Option, brother, he says, no, she says, other than our Lord, no other figure in the history of the human race is more loved and depicted in artwork than the Blessed Virgin Mary. And I think we can conclude on that thought. I think so. That's a good place to stop. Because <laughs> we could go on for days. <laughs> yeah, de, well, as St. Saint Bernard said it best, De Maria Numquam Satis, of, 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 lady, uh, of Mary there is never enough. Uh, you know what, I just read that this morning, De Maria Numquam Satis. I just, yeah. I just read it. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, brother, what's on our uh, episode of Reconquest uh, tonight? Well, tonight's Reconquest is called, let me see, i got to remember the exact name I gave it, Use in Bello and the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Is Joe your guest? No, no. Um, I mean, well, virtually, in as much as I, I, um, I uh, used some text that he, he provided for that piece that, that you, you mentioned on our website. Oh, it's wonderful. But if, yeah, if you go to the, in fact, if the, 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 if the listeners haven't read it yet, I highly recommend that they go to Catholicism.org and read Joe's article. I'm going to pop in the chat room the link to the Reconquest uh, show details page for this, and if you go, if you follow that link that I just dropped in the room, you can you can find um, the several things that, that that's linked from there. But one one of which is Joe's piece, the first of two parts, uh, which is called an act of state terrorism. It's wonderful, and I it's Joe giving giving the reasons why the bombing of Nagasaki was so unjust. And um, he actually gives starts it with the background of you know Nagasaki was was very Catholic. It was the most Catholic city in Japan. And he talks about the fact that it was at one time called the cradle of the Catholic Church in Japan, or the heart and soul of Japanese Catholicism. And um, so after giving this introduction, which includes Saint Maximilian Kolbe building a, a, a um, convent there for his Franciscan friars. Uh, then he goes into the bomb and and why Nagasaki was picked and oh yes um, and he quotes all these top brass the vast majority of our own top brass said this was unnecessary some objected on ethical grounds moral grounds others said it's simply militarily unnecessary because the Japanese are already defeated. Uh one and only Patrick J. Buchanan wrote an entire book about this, if you're interested, folks. Uh, it's been a subject that I have been discussing since about 2012 or so. Um, and Joe sent me this article probably the day after he sent it to you. And I had just had him on, or I would have had him on that day, but I'm going to mark it off on the calendar for next year. Because every year on the, on, uh, the bombing of Hiroshima, 
I talk about, and there's several essays, so I can add Joe's now, or we can have Joe on, about the bombing of Hiroshima and the Church of Our Lady of the Assumption in Hiroshima stands to this day. It's one of the two buildings in the entire area where uh, the, the, that first atomic bomb was detonated, and there were eight Jesuits that were inside the, the rectory that morning. Eight of them lived to old age. Um, now, some people dispute whether or not any of them ever got radiation sickness. The account that I read, so Father Sullivan did not get radiation sickness. And in 1976, he was still alive and he was still talking to groups of children about war and stuff and, 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 and telling his experience about what he had seen that day. But there can be no doubt, they survived. Eight Jesuit priests were in that uh, re rectory that morning when the bomb went off in Hiroshima and all eight of them survived. And he said, Father Sullivan said it was because he believed that they had kept up a devotion to our, and to the, uh, to the, uh, the request of Our Lady at Fatima. Yeah, that's right. They were practicing the Fatima devotions. That's right. That's and that's right. what, and he said, that's why we were the Blessed Virgin interceded and protected us. And that's why we survived. But Joe's essay here is just, man, if you're a history nerd, well, you'd love to listen to Joe Doyle talk anyway, but if you're a history nerd, uh, Joe delivers in spades at Catholicism.org. Oh, yeah, it's it's really good, and I'm looking forward to the to the, uh, to the the second one. Did you ever read the the um, uh, Fulton Sheen's statement about... I about did! It's amazing. The, 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 I mean, he... he he basically he basically attributed all the descent into chaos that was happening in the '60s to um, to to he he said uh, see how much the world has changed now what made it change I think maybe we can pinpoint a date 8:15 in the morning the 6th of August 1945. He gave a sermon. That's a sermon, isn't it? Or so, so he gave a uh, let me see what what is it? Um, I think it's I actually have it. a. Um, yeah, I, I don't... That needs to go on Crusade Max. I've heard it. We've played it. footnote doesn't have it being a sermon, but it's, yeah. You, uh, I, I, it, it's on a, I found it on a, a piece called Sheen and Hiroshima on the Catholic World oh, Report oh, brother, website, I can, which I linked to from, from that show details page on Reconquest.net. I can hear oh. him saying something of the, uh, that Arishka, I, I can hear him saying, well, I think we can trace it back to one particular day. And there it was, 8.15 in the morning, on the 6th of August, 1945. <laughs> I'm yeah, almost it, it, certain it, I've heard him say that. When you, you, you said something, I, I, I wasn't going to do a show on this subject. First of all, I was a little late because, I mean, I didn't, you know, the, sh the show actually debuted on, uh, on August 16th. So it was, a few, you know, sometime after the bombing of, of, of Nagasaki or Hiroshima. But, um, you know, better late than never, I say. But <laughs> I think one of the things that actually inspired me to do it was when I was listening to you on the Feast of the Transfiguration. I listened to you uh, sometime that morning, and you, you said, uh, if the government, if, if the American people can be sold on the moral probity of bombing two uh, population centers in Japan, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, what can't they be sold on? There you go. And when you said that, it really hit me. And I said, you know, so much of our subsequent history has uh, makes sense now. <laughs> it, it does, doesn't it? And and knowing what I know from 
uh, like for me, Michael Jones, who's who's documented um, the the uh, how you know Edward Bernays and the rise of propaganda. The guy who literally wrote the book on propaganda. He wrote a book called Propaganda. He's the one who gave it a bad name. Um, that book talked about you know so they had to change the name and they had to call it Public Relations after that. But that book talks about how, in order to preserve democracy, basically you have to fool people. You have to you yes. have to get people to follow the party line, and in order to do that, you need propaganda, and the, and people need to be you know le, sort of led around by the nose. I'm I'm not that's not what the book says, but actually what the book says is much more menacing because it's written in in, in more um, you know in more subtle language. But um, it, it, Edward Bernays was literally the guy who sold the U.S. population on World War One. He was paid by the government to do that. He sold the U.S. population again on World War Two. He was paid by the government to do that. He sold, you know, cigarettes to women, and you know, it's it's highly documented what he did, his career, which is really shameful. And everybody should know that he's the nephew of Sigmund Freud, and he took the insights of his uncle and sort of weaponized them against p people, against the populace, to sell them anything. And he thought this was acceptable. And you know who's written a lot about that? Frank Wright. Okay, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Frank is uh, very well versed in Bernays. So, so the, 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 this, when, you, when you realize that there were professional PR guys who were using highly sophisticated techniques to sell the American populace on World War One and then later on World War Two, uh, and you know, as Jones points out, th this stuff was being done a hundred years ago. Do you think that it's become less sophisticated since? Oh no, no, it's only <laughs> become more sophisticated. And this is the oligarchy that runs the country, and you know, the guys who are just you talked about them earlier. Now that we're at the end of the empire, they're I all think sort we of are fighting the over the yeah, yeah. trough. Um, uh, brother, uh, we're, we, you, you got to get. Well, no, you don't have to do school, but you got a lot of other stuff to do. Uh, Sister Maria Philomena's ad for the St. Benedict Center Conference is running. It's wonderful. Uh, you've added some speakers since the last time we did an ad. You need to give folks the full rundown of who's coming to the St. Benedict Center Conference and why this year, you people, we are going to pack St. Joseph Hall to the gills, standing room only. Yeah, we want people falling out the window. We do, literally. You're going to have to be peeking into the window in the back to get it. <laughs> You'll have to be listening to it on the Crusade Channel to, to get it in the parking lot. All right, give us a rundown. Okay, so oh, I was just, uh, you know, I, I I can't remember a list to save my life. Oh, I, I can help you. you. Shoe so Owen. No, no let, me, let me just give it to you in the order that I've got uh, it on, okay. the, on the uh, thing here that's in front of my face now. Uh, besides, uh, besides you and me, Mike, there's John Sharp, C.J. Doyle, Sister Philomena, Charles Coulomb, Hugh Owen, and a guy named Chris DeVos, who's probably not going to be, you know, he, he's not as big of a name as some of these others, but Chris DeVos is a young man who does work with Hugh Owen, uh, and he's, he's spoken on a couple of Colby Center um, f uh, f Forums, the different venues that they've that they've put on. Mm -hmm. um, Chris DeVos has spoken on those things. He he's obviously a disciple of Hugh Owen. He talks like him. Um, I don't mean I don't mean he, I don't mean uh, his. He sounds like Hugh. I mean he says the same kinds of things, same turns of phrase that Hugh uses. 
and um, he's been to our conference before um, as a guest, you know, as, 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 a, as a registered uh, attendee. But uh, this will be the first time he's speaking. He's a very intelligent young man. I interviewed him uh, a couple times uh, for Reconquest, and the theme that we discussed then was on the, the history of, well, what, if you deny the doctrine of creation, if you deny creation, what happens? Right. So we, he and I talked about many of the ramifications that follow if you deny creation. I wrote an odd rem on on it in, in after the first time I interviewed him on the subject because it intrigued me so much. Well, I can, um, I can so, give you one thing that happens: Pfizer vaccines. Yeah. Well, <laughs> scientism. Scientism. Yeah. Pfizer scientism happens. Yeah. 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 I mean, if God if the God didn't create us with immune systems that work, uh, you know, make us adaptable and so forth, then, then yeah, we're we're just a, a flawed piece of technology that that um, that human crafted technology has to somehow supplement. Right. We need to run Norton on us. Yeah, Jim. <laughs> Norton no, antivirus. Nobody runs Norton antivirus. <laughs> we need the human version of Norton antivirus to run on us. All right, brother, I'm going to leave you uh, with this. Uh, I think I have daughter number two convinced to, to go to the St. Benedict Center Conference this year for hopefully all three days. And um, here's how I, uh, I I kind of talked her into it. She is uh, she was the president of a French club in her high school, and lately she's gone back to learning French. And because she wants to be able to speak it as a second language. So I said, I tell you what, I'll join you because I've always wanted to learn to speak it too. So uh, I'm about a, I'm three weeks in and uh, I'm still in the very beginning stages. So don't quiz me. But I, I said, but Reagan, Charles Coulomb will be at the conference. And she goes, oh, is that the guy that you're mini me? And I said, <laughs> I said, just because he had a bow tie and a vest on does not make him my mini me. Actually, I would be his mini me. He's very, he's a little bigger than I am. I said, but Charles speaks fluent French, and he's very funny, and you can actually have a conversation with Charles in French. And I said, I'm pretty sure that Brother Andre speaks a little French as well. So you should come and try your French, <laughs> how well your studies are going out on some people that actually speak French. And she goes, I think I can make it. Let me ask for the day. Yeah, I, I, I hate to disappoint, but I am not a Francophone. Uh, Charles, Charles is, but his French is very Canadian. Uh, well, it was good enough to get us food ordered in France is all I can tell you. There you go. And directions on the train. <laughs> now, if you want a Francophone or if you want someone that actually speaks that speaks fluently, well, you could get your, your buddy Jonathan Arrington. I'm, I'm, he speaks any language. Uh, Faraday McDermott can speak it, and he can even speak Bretagne. He speaks Breton? Yes, he does. That's not French. That's a Celtic. I know. Language. He speaks it. That's crazy. Yeah, it, it, it's nuts. So, uh, brother, uh, God bless you and uh, all of those at St. Benedict Center. Um, uh, folks, to go sign up for the conference, you need to go to Catholicism.org or store.catholicism.org. You can go to Catholicism.org slash conference. There you go. Can't I, make I, it. I took, I took a page out of your playbook, Mike, and I, I made nice. a redirect page. Very nice. I'm glad I could be of service. <laughs> All right, uh, uh, brother. Au revoir. À la semaine prochaine.
Au revoir. Yeah. Au revoir, Michel. <laughs> I said, folks, if you're wondering, I said goodbye. I'll see you next week. I hope I said that. Um, all right, brother. God bless you. And, God bless. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>